Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. Wow. Good morning, everyone. There we go. Good morning. It's been a nice weekend. Just before I get going today, uh, I, I want to really encourage you to start praying about this Aaron Gillespie event. It may not be your scene. I saw some of you squirming. It's okay. Uh, but you know, God has transformed this young guy's heart, and he's reaching out to whole tribes of people you may not even know about. And we've got the great privilege of having him here. So my request again is that this whole community participates by volunteering, praying, or being here again, because we've got an opportunity to reach out to some people that this church usually doesn't connect with very well. And so it's a significant event, and, and it's significant that we rally behind it. So just a, a side note there, but uh, an amazing thing we get to do as a community. Well, again today, we're going to dive into this most, well, unusual of summer series with the least read book in the Bible, the book of Lamentations. So if you've got a Bible or you've got your iPad or iPhone or, well, maybe you don't have an iPhone this week, you don't like them very much, so Blackberry, whatever, uh, open it up, turn it on, and we'll, we'll read together. Now, like I shared last week, the reason why people don't like reading Lamentations is simple. It's made up of five very depressing poems. Now, it comes from the word lament, and a lament means uh, to cry out loud. To, it, it's a dirge. It's a song of loss that's sung at funerals. Now, this book, like I shared already, is about the fall of Judah and the destruction of God's city, Jerusalem, in 586 B.C. She's pictured here in this book as a widow and a disgraced, broken princess. Why? Well, as we already know, because of years and years of warning, years of pleading, years of God trying to save this marriage, God's word was already given, uh, prophet after prophet was sent, including Jeremiah, everything that God said had now come to pass because they chose not to love him. Time and time again, God had told his people, the prophets, the kings, that he would bless them for being faithful, but he would have to punish them for being unfaithful. And so they just simply chose. They said by word and deed, no. We're going to love God and obey him as long as it suits us. And so we read this passage that God has given them over. He's actually taken his hands of protection off them and allowed their sins to find them out. Here's a truth you will find from Genesis to Revelation. Long-term unrepentance, long unrepentance always leads to this, the removal of God's blessing. Now, last week, we saw the terrible state of the people, heard the cry of the prophet Jeremiah in the city. Well, this week... It's actually more dark. It's more grim, more perplexing, more jaw-dropping. Here in chapter 2, we are forced now to see in detail the destruction, the breaking, the disillusionment of once a great people. Now, let's be honest. We don't like watching or hearing about this stuff. It's like Good Friday, right? We come to Good Friday, and we only want to spend one hour there, and then we, we want to rush to Easter. It's like going on television and watching all the reports of Haiti six months later. It's just too much to bear. It's like turning on the television or being online and seeing the, the, the ads that are out there about starving children, and we just go, I can't handle this. I'm, I'm going to turn the channel. But God's not going to let us do that today. This, is, uh, this isn't allowed, he says. No sanitized, no safe, no clean, no neat, no happy unveiling happening here. We need to look this morning at the results of the judgment of God brought on by the people's decision 
Reading lamentation is like reading someone's prayer journal, seeing the real story, seeing real pain, seeing real prayer. Many say, John, I really want to know how to pray in a new or or deep way. And I would say, well, Lamentations is an amazing rare book that shows us real prayer in real situations, in real life, with people that had a real relationship with God and they decided to walk away from it. Lamentations simply could be summarized like this. It's sitting in regret and unspeakable loss. But before we look at the shadow of death, we all now need to look back, back to the light where shadows begin, because only there will we understand the contrast. The Psalms, the great hymn book of the Jewish people, only there will we really see how serious this is. Listen here to these songs of praise, songs of hope and joy over his people, his city, his temple, his presence. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 48, Mount Zion rejoices. The village of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk around Zion. Go go around her, the song says. Count her towers, her citadels. View her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even till the end. But then we come to Lamentations 2. And it reveals the worst fears of any person of faith. This is the grand reversal of everything we just read in that great hymn book. The fall now is all-encompassing and complete. One wrote these words, listen carefully. The function of the mirror image between Psalms and Lamentations is to critique a theology of election as privilege and to underscore the necessity of responsibility even after the relationship's there. As with the harsh words of Jeremiah 7, Lamentation confesses that no one can assume God will protect his own at any and all costs. No one can stand on holy ground and assert that nothing ever will overcome them. And so the second song, the first stanza of this second poem, begins like this. Verse 1, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from the heavens to the earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. His anger here is viewed like a summer storm coming up with all fury, fast, strong, black, loud, all-consuming. There's nowhere to hide. The word splendor is important. It was used for jewels and ornamentation, and throughout the Old Testament, the city of God, the people of God, the temple were all called splendor, but now the crown is broken, the jewel is gone. Without pity, verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and princes down to the ground in dishonor. I learned this week that the word dwelling is important too. It's the language of habitation, where shepherds actually live with their flocks, like the Christmas story. This being the iconic view of Israel, God, the great good shepherd, they the flock of, do- they, the flock of God. David, the greatest of kings, who was called what? The, the shepherd king, the one who was closest to God, or a man after God's own heart. Now all of this, all of this right here now is lost. The habitation is burned. The shepherd no longer protects from lion and bear. The sheep are being slaughtered and scattered, and they're now forcibly taken into another pen. In his fierce anger, the scripture says, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned Jacob like a fire, a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. The horn, by the way, is a really important thing to get this lament. 
It was an ancient word for strength and honor, but it's more than that. See, in front of the temple, there was a huge altar where they did all the sacrifices. And there were four upraised sort of sections, four horns. And you can read that in Exodus 29. Now, in that culture, if you had done something wrong and you were being hunted, if you ran and you grasped the horns of the altar, you would be given asylum and you would not be killed. It was a physical way of clinging to God for mercy. But now there's no horns left. God has cut off any means of asylum. There is no sanctuary, no temple, no place to grab, no place to plead your case with God, no place even to ask forgiveness. You cannot escape judgment. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow, verse 4. His right hand is now ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who are pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire in the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has summoned, he has swallowed up all her palaces, destroyed all her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. Anyone know why no one likes preaching on this yet? Think about that. This is declaring that God himself is now the enemy of his own people. The very power that he had used to destroy his own, their enemies, to destroy the nations around them, now is used against them because they had decided to worship the false gods in those nations that he had already rejected. His anger, so fierce, so just, so overwhelming, that he even decides to destroy his own places within his own city. It reads like this in verse 6. He has laid waste to his dwelling like a garden. He's destroyed the place, his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed feasts and her Sabbath. In fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar, abandoned his sanctuary. He has handed over to the enemy the walls of the palaces. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed feast. That last verse is really important. See, what used to happen is they'd come to the temple and hundreds of thousands of people and then millions would shout and celebrate and worship like we have this morning. But now it's not them, but it's the enemies who are shouting and gloating as people are dying and being raped and murdered all around. One wrote these words, because of national wickedness, the holy structure, the temple, the most holy place on earth is demolished like it was just a worthless garden shed. The celebrations that are supposed to be followed according to the Bible no longer can be observed because they've now been terminated. The intercessions of the altar were faithful and claimed and found reconciliation with God throughout the ages is now a thing of the past. More significant, however, is the implication that no amount of outward religious duty can ever overcome God's wrath if someone continually, continually rejects the covenant love already given. The Lord is determined to tear down the wall around the daughter of Zion, verse 8. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made the ramparts and the walls lament. Together they now waste away. Her gates have sunk into the ground. The bars have been broken and destroyed. Her king and princes now in exile among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets no longer find vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit in the ground in silence. They've sprinkled dust, uh, dust on their heads. They've put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Jerusalem now is in the worst, most pathetic state. God now does not speak through the written word. If you read the Bible carefully, they won't even find God's written word now to the time of Ezra. It's lost. He doesn't speak through dream or vision. And the elders, the head of all the families, now have sackcloth on. Imagine this for us today. No worship, no community, 
no access to Bibles, no forgiveness, no pastors, no priests, and the most respected among us are now covered in goat hair and black, covered in dust and ash because Ajax and Pickering and Whippy and Oshawa and Brooklyn have been burned to the ground and there's nothing left. That's the state of the people of God. The song now shifts in Hebrew from a third-person account now to a first-person account, a first-hand experience, which, of course, is the most personal of stories. Verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint. That's a nice way of saying die in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine as they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away right in their mother's arms? What can I say for you? What can I compare you to, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, O daughter, virgin daughter of Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The worst has happened, and now children are dying in the streets and in their mother's arms, and they can't do anything but just sit and watch. The question I asked this week as I read this is, is this fair? I mean, seriously, God, I know you're holy and just, but this seems like a little too much for me. Where's your love, I thought? But again, we need to see this for what it is, not what we want it to be. One scholar sort of slapped me when he wrote these words. By isolating the fall of Jerusalem from the historical chain of cause and effect, it would be totally possible to regard God's actions in decimating this population as unethical, unjust, and just downright unloving. But when the sequence is viewed as a whole, the destruction of the nation is seen in the fulfillment of all the warnings and blessings God had given. Like all children, their destiny was deeply involved with that of their parents who showed little of any signs of rearing their offspring in the love relationship they had been given with God. The parents themselves were responsible for their children's doom in another sense also. Ancient Near Eastern rules of war permitted the inhabitants of a city to surrender, and if they did, they'd escape death and the sword. By their obstinate resistance to the Babylonians and also their resistance to God, they sealed the fate of their own community and their own children. The corporate nature of God's relationship with with his people carries carries with it a corporate responsibility. The callous indifference of the wanton selfish parents to the destiny of their offspring shows the depths of sin those parents actually had fallen into. Instead of bringing up their children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord, they decided it would be better to do that plus maybe hang out with Baal and sold their own children into emotional and spiritual bondage to a false demonic God. Before you raise a finger at God and say, you're unfair and unjust, ask yourself the question about the parents. They had everything. It's expressed in the Psalms, everything. His word, God, promises, everything the world didn't have, and they still said, no, we know better, and God isn't watching. And so critics of our movement today see your God is unloving. And I turn around and I say, no, we are irresponsible. The visions of your prophets, it goes on, were false. They were worthless. He now turns actually against people like me. They did not expose your sin, he writes, to ward off your captivity. Do you see that? If you had just decided not to do this, there would be no captivity. There would only be love and and blessing. The oracles they gave you were false and they were misleading. 
Judah again and again had committed adultery in God for years and years, and they would not repent. The people of God, like I said, the ones that had his written word, had his relationship, had oracles and prophets, had the temple, had God's presence and priests and sacrifices, everything else the rest of the world wanted but did not have yet. And yet they still said no. Judah decided to say yes to other gods, to other worship. They sang to many gods. They sacrificed to some, not to one. And like I shared last week, they shared partners and got into bed with many and thought their true spouse would just be okay with that. The religious leaders of the day said to them, it's okay. <laughs> Don't be so hard on yourself. It's all just going to be worked out. God's good with this. It's all about grace, right? Let's all just hug and be friends. Verse 15, 16, and 17 continue the description of death. And it's interesting, it ends by saying that God has exalted the horn now of your foes. Finally, at the end of the second song, we're shown the city. And then the prophet crying out, actually praying, asking for God's mercy to be aroused. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord, O wall of daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river, day and night, give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest, arise, cry out in the night, as the watches of the night begin, pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord, lift up your hands to him, for the lives of your children who faint from hunger mat the head of every single street. And then without breath left, in the middle of all this consuming darkness, the prophet himself now cries out again to God, dizzy and sickened by what he sees, what he smells, what he experiences. When I read this below, this is not just some self-talk, by the way, some cold recounting of the events far away, or even some therapy session in which one tries to, you know, deal with history with another. No, no. This is prayer. This is the most intimate and destructive experience between a human and God because of what's happened around. Look, O oh Lord. Look, O oh Lord, and consider. Whom, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their own children? The children that they have cared for? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the street. My young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You've slaughtered them without pity. As you summon to a feast day, so you now summon against me terrors. Not on some sides, on all sides. There's no way out. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one has escaped or survived. Those I cared for. Those I reared, my enemy has destroyed. The summary is nothing but awful. The city is attacked, the temple is swept aside, children are dying en masse, there's mass slaughter, accounts of famine now leading to cannibalism, terrible loneliness, prayers of complaint, and then whew, silence. So the question we ask on this beautiful Sunday in the middle of the summer is, what in the world can we learn from this? I mean, what in the world can we hear from this? What is God trying to teach us? I mean, I know all scriptures God breathed and useful, but what in the world could God give our community out of this? Well, believe it or not, a lot. Let me speak to the many of you who join us who aren't Christians. And I'm very clear about this. You may belong to another movement, another faith. You may be an agnostic or just spiritual, or you may have the title Christian, but you're not really a follower. This truly today is a wake-up call given by God to you out of love. 
Whether you know it or not, you actually are this city. You are under God's judgment, Scripture is clear, and you're separated from Him. Do you really think that by being good or kind or really religious, you can deal with everything you've ever done against yourself, others, and oh, by the way, God? The answer is no. Remember, these people were being really good in the world sense, very religious, and look what happened. John Bailey once wrote these great words, the person who believes in the existence of God but lives if God wasn't around has fallen much farther from God than he who has difficulty in believing in God's existence yet lives in such a way to actually put believers to shame. The real unbeliever is not the one whose life witnesses to a belief he does not possess, but rather the one whose life proves he does not really believe what he says he believes. The scriptures say this to you this morning as a seeker, you here and you watching and listening. Colossians 1 says, you are alienated from God and enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. It's the same thing as Jerusalem. Romans says, the wages of sin is death, just like that city. But it doesn't stop there. It says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, as we will see throughout Lamentations and then throughout Scripture, does not just leave us under judgment. He does not leave us as the broken city. Yes, he is just and has the right to do what he has done because we started the process, not him. Yes, by our actions, we are under his judgment. We are alienated and estranged from him. Whether you believe it or not, it is true. But then by mercy, he provides life where there is death. Like I said last week, one of the reasons why John 3.16 is so beloved around the world is because it is the final note after judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus that whoever believes in him will not perish like that city but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. I started today with a description of what the city of God once was. And at the center of it, it says, God is among us. And then Lamentations, you read, God is no longer with us. The choice as a seeker is, what do, you, what do you want your life to look like? Like the destruction of Lamentations or like the Psalms? All you must do, first and foremost, is ask the living God to show you your real condition. Because you will never believe you need a Savior until you realize that you're in real trouble. Some of you are sitting there going, I'm fine, and I'm telling you, you're not. But God has decided in his mercy because he is full of holiness and love to provide a way back to him and to rebuild the destruction of lamentations in each of our lives. The question is, would you be willing, would you dare the living God to say, show me my sin so I will really truly know if I need a savior? Because if you do that, he will. And once you are brought low and you are humbled and you understand the destruction that you are truly in against yourself, others, and God, suddenly Jesus will make sense. Suddenly this whole Christian thing will make sense because you will go, oh, it's not about me or proving myself or being a good person. It's about mercy. And all of us who are Christians will go, yes. If you dare pray the prayer, just say, God, expose me. Is what that guy saying, is that true? When you're brought low, then you will hear about mercy and Jesus dying in your place, being risen from the dead, and taking all the sin of the world on, including all the sins we read about here, conquering them, and three days later saying, if you want life, come through me. Many of us here and watching and listening have done that. We know it's not about us. We've abandoned the religious thing a long time ago. But here's the question for all of us who now are followers. 
What in the world does this teach us? Well, the answer is this. It actually teaches us types of prayer that many of us will need now and in the future, or many of our family and friends will need in times of tragedy. Like I said, and one person wrote, the frank language and lamentations should persuade every single one of us this morning that God is open to real feelings and honest reactions to tragedy. There is never an answer in the immediacy of an overwhelming tragedy, and one's prayer need to reflect that to be real. Let me flesh this out just for a few seconds. In particular, Lamentations 1 and 2 teaches us three types of prayer that are rarely talked about in church and desperately need to be recovered. They're called the prayer of forsaken, the prayer of examine, and the prayer of tears. Let me say this again. If you're taking notes, write that down. The prayer of the forsaken, the prayer of examine, and the prayer of tears. Richard Foster in his little book, Prayer, side note, great summary of this. The prayer of the forsaken is a prayer to God when he seems hidden, distant, to a God that never seems to respond anymore. All of Lamentations 2 is a prayer of the forsaken. As one said, prayers like this are like beating on heaven's door with bruised knuckles in the dark. It's also seen in the lament of Jesus, who was in the same condition, by the way, as Jerusalem, when he took on all our sins on the cross. Hear the words of Jesus afresh as he's dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. The prayer is simply saying, you've walked away, God, and I don't know what to do anymore. With this type of prayer, two things emerge. First, this prayer is made up by complaining, real complaining, not I don't like the weather, real complaining, which has largely been lost in our modern, sanitized view of faith. But the Bible is full of this. Look, O Lord, verse 20, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Do you think Jeremiah was saying this like this? Oh, look, oh, Lord. There's cannibalism happening around him. This is an all-out fight between him and God. But here's the second thing we learn, and listen closely. When we begin to pray in forsaken states, we begin to realize we can't manage God. One wrote, can you see how every sense of God's absence could be an unexpected grace? In every act of hiddenness, God is slowly weaning us from fashioning him in our own image. Like Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, God is wild and free, and he comes as he wills. By refusing to be a puppet on our own string or a genie in our bottle, God frees us now from all false images of him. When we pray like this for real, or we teach others who are feeling forsaken to pray this for real and give them the permission Then the second prayer comes, because they're interlinked. Once we've given our complaint, we've lamented, we are broken before God, then another prayer comes, called the prayer of examine, where we say, Lord, my defenses aren't up anymore. I'm coming and saying, search me and know me. Chapter 1 and 2 are honest about sin, and this prayer is about looking beyond the surface. Richard Foster wrote this about the prayer of examine. It is a priceless grace that we are given self-knowledge. Unfortunately, contemporary men and women just don't value self-knowledge in the same way that preceding generations have. For us, technocratic knowledge reigns supreme. Even when we pursue self-knowledge, much of the time we do it for peace and prosperity for ourselves. How poor we are, he writes. Even pagan philosophers knew an unexamined life wasn't worth living. What did Socrates say? Know thyself. But the only way to know yourself is to ask the one who is not sinful, who is not darkened in any way, knows everything is always present, and say to him, show me the good, the bad, and the ugly. We quote this psalm a lot in church, but it's true. Search me, O God, 
Know my heart, test me, know my ancient thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Catch this. Lamentations 1 and 2 teaches us how to complain in a godly way during times of tragedy. He teaches us how to be forsaken before God, how to deal with silence. Second of all, then we're moved to a prayer of examine where we cry out and say, Lord, though I'm concerned that you're going to expose me, I ask for it anyway. And then, and then finally, we're moved to the prayer of tears, exactly where Lamentations 2 ends. Verse 18, the hearts of the people cry out to the Lord, O wall, daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Tears come after examination because they're connected to something called repentance. Do you think that as a Christian you can live a double life and God's just okay with it? Are you saved? Yes, you are. Does he love you? Actually, more than you know. Can you lose this eternal bond called salvation? No, you're not big enough to kick him out. But do you think just because Jesus died for you that there's no call to actually over your whole life reflect him more and more? Grace can never become a card to sin, to cover, and God is still God and we're not. For some of us this morning, we need to repent of sin and using God. Never forget, though, repentance does bring forgiveness. And as we will see next week, mercy will be given. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. But before mercy, hear this, tears need to come. Again, Richard Foster writes these words, Tears are a sign, not an infallible sign, but they are a sign nevertheless that God has touched the center. Through the prayer of tears, we give God permission to show us our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others. And as best I can discern, tears are starting to show us that something's moving from the head to the heart. Some of you ask, honestly, but John, wonder if I can't cry. Or, or here's me being real honest, wonder if I just don't think I need to. Well, the answer is, then you have something to talk about with God. Again, I quote Richard Foster in ending. Allow me to share a few things, he says, with you. Be both firm and friendly with yourself. Don't let yourself get away with, well, I'm just not the emotional type excuse. And remember that you did not take on this modern macho, I am a rock, I'm an island attitude overnight. So it's going to take more of a day or two to change your own habits and prayer life. Be encouraged, as Thomas Akempis once said, habits do overcome habits in time. You're building new habits of prayer. Be patient, kind, firm, and persistent with yourself. Next, here's what you need to do. You need to immerse yourself in books like Lamentations and the Gospels, and you will be cured from your false Christian view, this stiff upper lip, relig stiff upper lip religion that is so foreign to the Scriptures and foreign to Jesus, who is called a man of what? Sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus knew the prayer of tears, and if you want to be a fully devoted follower, you need to know them too. Even if your eyes are dry and in your mind are sort of hard, you can ask God to break you, and in time they will come. The reason why Lamentations 2 is important for us today is this. Much of the time, we never get these conversations going, and so a tragedy comes, we say the wrong things. Much of the time, when tragedy comes, people walk away because they don't think they have permission to be forsaken. They don't know how to complain properly, so they don't. They don't understand that God wants to examine them to set them free, and they really don't believe in the end that tears is a sign of spiritual life. Let me declare to you this morning, some of you are under judgment because you're not believers yet, and you've never understood the mercy that God has for you, and today is a wake-up call. For the rest of us who are followers who have had that wake-up call, not by our own doing, but by His, this is what we learned today. 
We must have an authentic faith. And an authentic faith means sometimes feeling forsaken and doing something with it. Sometimes asking God to expose us so we can get freedom and learning how to cry before God about our own sin. If you have never in your Christian life wept over your own sin, you are not walking closely with Jesus. It's not just an emotional thing or a cultural thing or a generational thing. There's something deep here in Scripture. When our sins get exposed, or here's the other thing, when we see the sins of others, we get broken on a level that only comes from God himself. This is what Lamentations 2 teaches us. And we need to recover it again because we need authenticity in our movement because authenticity is the great gateway these days to evangelism. Lamentations 2 is probably one of the darkest passages in the Bible, but God included it so we could deal with real life. Thanks be to God, he's a real God. Why don't you pray with me these three prayers? For you who feel forsaken, pray this prayer with me now. God, where are you? I mean, what have I done to make you hide from me like this? Are are you playing cat and mouse with me? Are your purposes maybe larger than my perceptions? I feel alone and lost and forsaken. You're the God, right, who majors on revealing yourself. I mean, you showed yourself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Moses wanted to know you, you obliged him. Why them and not me? I'm tired of praying. I'm tired of asking. I'm tired of waiting. But I am going to keep praying and asking and waiting because I know I have nowhere else now to go. Jesus, you too knew the loneliness of the desert and isolation of the cross. Through your forsaken prayer, I just pray these words. Next, the prayer of examine. And only pray this if you truly want the living God to examine your motives, your hearts, your religiosity. Precious Savior, why do I fear your scrutiny sometimes? I mean, I know yours is an examine of love, yet I'm afraid, afraid of what is going to surface. Even so, I invite you now to search me to the depths of who I am, So I will know myself, and more important, I will know you in fuller measure. Whatever you bring up, Lord, I know you're going to help me through it, so come and do your work. And lastly, as Richard Foster penned this last one too, this is the prayer for tears. Gracious Jesus, it's easier for me to approach you with my mind than tears. I don't know how to pray from the emotive center of my life or even how to get in touch of that part sometimes. Still, I come to you just as I am. I'm sorry for my many rejections of your overtures of love. I mean, forgive me of all of my offenses against your law. I repent of my callous and insensitive ways. Break my stony heart with things that break your heart. Jesus, you went through the greatest trial in unashamed agony and wept tears of deep, deep sorrow. So in remembrance of your sorrow, help me to cry and weep over my own sin and the sin of the world. For your sake and in your name, amen. Lord, we as a community now thank you for these words. The truth is, as we're sitting here, we still have a lot of questions reading Lamentations 2. 
We have questions about your work, your character, your will. But Lord, I pray for myself and our whole community for a deeper, more authentic walk where forsakenness and examine and tears are just normative in our walk. And same with joy and praise and mercy. They're all there. And Lord, too, now as we come and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus through communion, it's so appropriate. Because it says in the scriptures that before we are to take communion, we are to examine ourselves. And so, Holy Spirit, I'd ask you to convict me and all of us of any sin before we take this. And remember, Jesus, your death and your resurrection, where you took on, you took on all the sin of the world when we were like this broken city in Lamentations and gave us hope and made us new. This moment, we join with every Christian around the world, celebrating the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and our future hope that one day we will eat with him face to face. We pray you'd bless these elements and our time with you. Uh, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.